right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the Logically Faithful. This is Keldon Swice. Um, we are engaging culture redemptively and addressing suffering productively. Today, I have a special guest of Eric Metaxas. He'll be on pretty uh, soon. Eric is a um, um, a longtime mover and shaker in culture. I'll be introducing him when he's on, and we're going to be talking to him about how we can better address culture with the lessons from Martin Luther and Bonhoeffer, uh, the great martyr, spy, and a gentleman who was working specifically in the German uh, military, oh, not German military, German political system, and the outside of the church to bring down Adolf Hitler during his time. We'll be addressing those issues as well as how to deal with the current political chaos, how to we strive as believers, as thinkers, as uh, Americans today. So these are some of the things I'll be discussing. Let me discuss in the meantime while we're waiting for um, um, Mr. Eric Taxis to come on is the process of how do we better address the situations around us, uh, given the circumstances when things get very tough in life. The waters start to boil and things of that nature. How do we deal with them in a proper way? Ah, there he is. This is the famous Caldoun. The famous Eric Metaxas. I actually have you on after four years of chasing after you. That's something. I, I am so sorry when I realized that I thought this is not possible. Okie dokie. All right. So five. Are you ready now? I don't know. The fish in water is it the fish out of water. Congratulations on the new book, by the way. And just for people who don't know, I've been following Eric. He's been one of my heroes for many years, way back to the days of VeggieTales. Um, he is author, conservative radio host, and sometimes unconservative. <laughs> He's authored multiple books. Some of my favorite are uh, the William Wilberforce book, uh, The Heroic Champion to End Slavery, uh, Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world multiple other things, as well as Socrates in the City. I love that series that you did. Uh, I hope that we bring that back with the um, uh, Stop Wearing the Face Diapers and then we can make things happen. <laughs> uh, well, the pandemic is over, that is, whenever that is. But anyway, uh, I'm so happy and glad to have you on and we're ready to engage. I know I have a few minutes with you, but I really want to it's, pick your brain on that. Um, it's a privilege. Listen, let me just say it's a privilege uh, to do this. I want to thank you. Uh, for trying to track me down. I am so busy. It's a good thing, but it's sometimes not a good thing because uh, I don't get to do things like this that often. So thank you for inviting me and uh, for making this time. An honor, an honor. All right. So uh, I would like to discuss a major issue, uh, principles we can learn from Luther and from Bonhoeffer on how to deal with the current chaos that we're in today. So, um, I mean, you've been in the news lately. You've been hitting this hard regarding the, uh, uh, the elite media situation and the political situation that we have found ourselves in or put ourselves in to be more accurate. Um, help us navigate this issue of people who are just so sick of the situation that they have gone into a form of passivity um, regarding the election specifically. Um, that's that's the issue. As believers, as Christians, a lot of my audience are un- un- unbelievers as well or skeptics. So deal with that. Well, I mean, listen, truth, truth is truth. There's no such thing as Christian truth. There's just truth. And I think that um, many people who know me know me because I wrote this book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it was really not my idea. I didn't uh, usually when I write a book, I mean, I've written many books by now, but usually when I write a book, except for the new book, which is the story 
of my life called Fish Out of Water. The, the new book, of course, I knew for years what I wanted to say, and it was just an issue of writing the book. But with most of my other books, I didn't really know that much until I got into it. And the Bonhoeffer story is like that. And the story of Bonhoeffer, for people who don't know it, is basically this is a German pastor in the 1930s in Germany who, due to a series of, you can say, coincidences where he was in life, his family situation, he was able to see things that most Germans didn't see. And he understood that the National Socialists, the Nazis, uh, everybody now says, oh, Nazis, they're evil. Well, in 1930, very few Germans had any idea who the Nazis really were, where they were going. In fact, I would go so far as to say, I don't think most of the Nazis knew where they were going. Um, where they ended up, we all know now, was one of the most evil things in the history of the world, the Holocaust and on and on and on. Right. But at the time, most Germans, most good people didn't really see this. And Bonhoeffer in some ways was like a prophet because he saw these things and he said, I have to speak about these things. The price for speaking out was high. When I wrote the book, I said, I have a funny feeling something similar to this is happening in America. Now, right away, when you say that, people think, well, what do you mean? Who's Hitler and who is uh, who are the Nazis? I'm not saying that. I'm talking about principles. But there are principles that um, we, we have to learn from. And the story of Bonhoeffer is an example of how a culture that is a civilized culture, you know, these are, these are not the, uh, the, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis or, or whatever. This, this is not some tribal thing. We're, we're talking about one of the most civilized societies on the planet was Germany in the 30s. Um, this was a culture that was profoundly Christian, that was, it was just a level of civilization uh, and Christian culture. But here's what's interesting and horrifying is that when the dark times came and Hitler and the Nazis began pushing the German people in a certain direction, they didn't have the wisdom or the courage to say, stop, this is wrong. No, we won't go along with this. They didn't have the ability to look back and say, oh, this happened before. We better be careful. It really hadn't happened before. They were naive. They always felt that the leader of the country who had been the, the king or the Kaiser had always been Christian and basically good and basically going along with the church. Suddenly they're confronted with a leader who talks a good game, who doesn't and say, oh, by the way, I'm evil. Oh, by the way, I want to murder all the Jews. Oh, by the way, I despise Christianity. He played the game. He pretended to go along with God and the church. Total baloney. But Bonhoeffer saw this early on. And who, our only chance is for the church to wake up, for the church to see this, because the church has the will, theoretically, because we have God commanding us to do the right thing. God tells us, I've defeated death, and I command you to live as though I've defeated death, to be free, to speak the truth, not to fear. Well, Bonhoeffer, as we now know, failed. But the lesson from him that comes to us today is that we have the example of Bonhoeffer and Germany in the 30s. We can see what happens when people don't speak up. When people are trying to impose things on us, we have a choice. I can look the other way and maybe keep my job and don't ruffle any feathers, or I can speak up 
and maybe spend some cultural capital. Maybe somebody will look at me funny. But if enough people speak the truth, then there is no doubt that we have the ability to overcome these dark forces. And the dark forces we're dealing with today, uh, I would say it's really cultural Marxism. It's it's many things, but it's the cancel culture that says some elites are going to start deciding what's right and what's wrong, and they're going to impose these things. And if you don't toe the line, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose whatever it is. So it's a very similar cultural thing. So we're responsible for understanding what's going on and speaking against it. And you don't need to be a PhD to say, uh, guys running against high school girls in a track meet and crushing them, that's not right. Somebody needs to do something about that. My daughter has worked so hard. She wants to get a scholarship. These things are happening day by day in America. And we are the kind of people like we want to get along. We want the Germans had a problem of being, uh, you know, very authoritarian. And so if somebody said something, they listened. Our problem is similar, but different. We are nice guys. If somebody says something, we're like, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Mm-hmm. Germans don't care about offending anybody. Um, they obeyed. We care about offending people. So we obey. We say, well, I don't, I don't want to be the one to bring that up. I might offend somebody. I might. And the fact is we're silencing ourselves and we have an obligation to speak out. Anytime somebody is canceled, we should speak up and push against it. Um, anyway, that's my long answer to a no, short question. Um, how, how, do you, how do you do that? For example, I'm at a secular institution. I've been, quote, canceled twice for events that I put forward that were um, offensive. And I, you know, I want to remind my colleagues that free speech is not really free if you limit those who are, quote, offensive be it John Stuart Mill and those proponents of that. But nevertheless, there is a limit to free speech. And if I may take on the role of the other side, uh, Eric, they say that Trump and his supporters are either one of two things, mentally incompetent or malevolent. So they are in the branch of the Nazis, so they need to be, quote, canceled, whether it's on Twitter and other places. And I've known people in my own field who have been lost their Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts, just like the president did and others or speaking up. So then they're silenced and they lose their jobs and some people have families to support. How do you um, address this issue of seeing people are demonizing them? And secondarily, how do you encourage people to really take what you just said and apply it? Yeah. Actually get First of all, let, let's, let's, let's take one thing at a time. First of all, I would say if somebody is trying to demonize other people, you know right away they're the ones with the issue. We don't do that. To demonize other people, we need to to learn from history, okay? The Nazis demonized the Jews. They dehumanized them, and they demonized them. That is something that we should know if we're Christians or if we're any kind of Americans who love freedom and the Constitution. We say, we don't do that here. In America, everyone has the permission and the right to say stupid things, to say wrong things. It's not about, do I agree with you? It's about, do you have the right to say things? So when somebody says, no, you don't have the right to say that because that's going to incite violence, that's completely subjective nonsense. I would argue that many of the things being said on the left are inciting violence and causing harm. Anytime anyone says anything, it has the ability to do that. So when some people start deciding that's the group they're domestic terrorists. When you, when you call 80 million Americans who voted for Trump, when you call that many millions of Americans somehow 
racist, uh, prone to violence. I know you're the one that has the problem because that's a sick thing for you to say the people, the American people are all so guilty that we're going to treat them in this way. Now, they could do it to the Jews because there weren't so many Jews in those days. But the fact of the matter is, that's how you take over a whole country is one piece at a time. And in this country right now, I think it's simply our inability to speak up. Now, we also have to have wisdom about when do you speak up. Right. We all have power, certain power. I'll give you an example. Uh, Mike Lindell, uh, he has the ability to, to speak up. So he's been speaking up amazingly. And he has every right to say what he's saying about the election. Even if you don't agree with him, he has the right to say these things. When people say he doesn't have the right, again, I know right away, they're the ones with the problem. Because of course he has the right in America. You do not have to like him. You don't have to agree with him. This is America. People say all kinds of foul things. Uh, outside Chicago and Skokie, Illinois in the, in the 80s, the ACLU defended a, a neo-Nazi group because they said, even though we despise what they're saying in America, even that kind of despicable language and speech is permissible. We are not going to applaud it, but we allow it because this is America. These are fundamental values. Once you move away from that, you're in trouble. So Mike Lindell spoke these things, right? And a number of big corporations said, we're going to cancel him. We're going to wipe him out. We're not going to carry his stuff in our stores. So Bed Bath & Beyond, Kohl's department stores, HEB stores, and Wayfair, and a few others said that we're going to do this. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's fundamentally anti-American. It's wrong. They're absolutely oh, wrong. If you want to get into Mr. politics, Mr. pardon me? Is that, that is it Mr. Pillow? Is that? So, yes, that's my, my, Mike Lindell, my pillow, right? And they said, because of the, what he said, we're going we're gonna to cancel him. We're going to hurt him financially. So where I'm going with this is when somebody does that, number one, that's wrong in America. You don't do that. But the other issue is we all have power. And you have to choose when you're going to use that power. Some of the power we have is the power of the purse. Evangelical Christians, Trump voters, whatever, spend trillions of dollars. We need to say, if you're going to treat someone like that, I'm going to make it my business to tell everyone I know not to shop at Kohl's and to drive a long way and not to shop at Bed Bath & Beyond, because in America, we don't do that. And you're going to pay a price. You don't need to agree with Mike Lindell, but for you to treat him that way because you disagree with him, you're disagreeing with half of America. And as part of that half, I'm going to tell all my friends not to shop in your store because you don't need to do this. You're, you're carrying a lot of products in your store, probably made by slave labor in China, and you're looking the other way in that direction. So the point is that we have to do that. We have to write emails to the local store or to the corporate headquarters and say, because you've done this, uh, to Mike Lindell, whether you agree with him or not, that's wrong. I will not shop in a store where they do this. If more Americans did this, we would be in a different country because all of those stores would instantly, if they get 10 emails like that, much less 1,000 or 50,000, right. they're going to think twice. They're going to say, wow, we didn't know that Mike Lindell has so many people who love him. Maybe we, we shouldn't behave that way. But Americans typically don't do that. And so I'm here to say we need to start doing things like that. We need to start speaking up. Because you do not have to agree with someone. You simply have to say, in America, we have the right to say these kinds of things. And when people say, no, you don't, I would say, well, who are you speaking for? Because I have millions of people who agree with me. And by the way, for you to insult me and to suggest I'm a racist 
or that I'm a bigot uh, because I have these views. You're a bigot. You're trying to demonize me. That's the definition of bigotry. But we need to see that this is happening and that if we don't use our voice as we're able, I'm not talking about being foolish, but as we're able to speak, when we have an opportunity to speak, it affects people around us. There are people looking at us and thinking, hey, he just said that. Maybe I'm not the only one thinking that. Maybe there are more people who think that way. I'm not going to be so shy about speaking up. We really need that. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And you emphasize and you give examples from one of your books. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, the seven men and, and, uh, and how these men are seven women as well and how they made a difference for their culture. And they stood up. But there's a line to draw. There are some hills to fight on and die on and other hills you just walk away from. Something that's just right. Not right. Um, and let's let's shift the conversation to Luther a little bit. Now, Luther, during his time, he went up against the political and social and the um, uh, ecclesiastical elite during his time, and he paid for it. Uh, he had to go into hiding, isolation. Um, but what, what drove him at his point of his life to actually come out of the shadows and put himself on the firing line? Uh, and what can I think that we all have to count the costs. In other words, every one of us um, has a price to pay, and you have to determine when is the time for me to pay the price? When is the time for me? I mean, when I saw what looked to me like funny business in the election, I said to myself, you know what? Even if I'm wrong, just the fact that I'm thinking this, that's not good for America. We need to get to the bottom of this. We need to have transparency. We need to have the states go over these things. When people said to me, shut up. No, it's over. You're, you're a bigot. Those are conspiracy theories. Right away, I say, wait a second. No, no. I, I'm a... F- I think you're afraid of something because you're accusing me just for bringing this up. You're accusing me of all kinds of things rather than dealing with what I'm saying. And I knew when I pushed on this, I would pay a price. I was locked out of Twitter a number of times. Uh, I was knocked off of uh, my YouTube channel, which is where we make money for my radio program. But I said, am I going to trust God or am I going to worry about what people are going to do? There's a time when you have to say, this is the right thing to do. There are people looking at me and depending on me to do the right thing. I'm going to do the best I can, and I'm going to trust God with the results. If you don't believe in God, you're kind of stuck, I think. But if you know that doing the right thing is doing the right thing, it's a transcendent thing. If you don't do it, you're responsible. So when I was doing my radio program or doing whatever I was doing, I knew I would catch hell for it. But I thought to myself, how could I not do this? I've written about people like Martin Luther. I've written to people like Bonhoeffer and others. Every one of us, almost every day, we have decisions we can make. And there are times when, for me, with with regard to this election and election fraud, potentially, I said, I am not going to shut up. I, I think that when people tell me to shut up, they're telling me everything I need to know. They're afraid that there's something going on. You don't tell people to shut up. You don't try to silence people if you're on the side of the truth. I I really think that Americans need to be more bold and need to understand, you know, we often say you can never outgive God. If I do the right thing, do I not trust that God has my back? I mean, people went to their deaths uh, because they said, I'm not going to turn against my faith. The 21 uh, men who were martyred um, a few years ago on, on on the beach in the orange jumpsuits, yeah, they could have said, hey, I don't need this. I don't need this. They understood there's, there's a larger reality. Uh, God is the author of life. He's the author of truth. My job is to serve him. And when it comes a time to do something like that, when I do the right thing, God will reward me, whether it's in the next life or this life or both. 
I, I think we need to uh, understand that our faith is not just, you know, it's not a flavor that I like. It's reality. And we're, we've come bit. to time where we have to live in that. Let me push back a little bit, Eric. Um, regarding the cult of personality, you know, Jesus is our savior and Trump is his man. And we got to go after Trump because that was the issue with the Trump issue. But um, there is a, there's a, there's a line, a fine line to draw uh, regarding um, where my faith and my politics and my social life interact and they intersect. Uh, do you have any principles for us to say when we should be stepping into the firing line based on the writings you did in your own life? Well, sure. I, I think, look, I mean, I think politics comes to us. If you believe that the unborn are human beings, mm. you have an obligation. You don't ask for, 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 for the, so you don't want trouble, but trouble comes to you because there are laws and politicians pushing a wicked agenda. You have no choice but to stand up to it. Now, how you stand up to it, to what extent, that's, that's another story. When I know what I didn't know five years ago, that China has taken the tremendous wealth and power that they've accrued over the years. They're using it to brutally oppress my fellow human beings. They are putting Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. This is no exaggeration. They are murdering them for their organs. They have no values. They're an atheist communist party that does not believe that every human being is sacred. They can do anything they like. If I have the power to speak against that, and I do not speak against that, if I do not speak up for a politician who is pushing against that, if I do not speak against a corporation like Nike or the NBA, which is making money off of this kind of thing, how can I look at myself in the mirror? So this is not an issue of being political. This is an issue of doing the right thing. And I think that when people say, oh, you've got to keep your politics separate. I don't I don't really want to be involved in politics. But if there's an issue on the table like the slave trade, everybody told William Wilberforce, keep your faith out of politics. And he thought to myself, what kind of a faith do I have if I look the other way to keep political power when my fellow human beings are being sold into slavery? So we have to be much bolder and braver, more courageous and say, these are God's issues. These are not political issues. They become political issues because not enough people speak up about it. And suddenly there's this big battle. Should there be a battle on these things? Not really. These are really basic moral issues. If you don't care about somebody being persecuted in China, or you don't care that your money, your tax money is, is helping corporations that uh, are working with immor- in immoral conditions uh, with human beings in China, you know, then then you're really just trying to avoid things. And I think that just as much as you can make an idol of politics, you can uh, make an idol of avoiding politics. And I think that's the problem today is that there are many Christians, especially young Christians, they think like, well, I don't want to be unpopular. I don't, and I think you don't want to be unpopular. Don't you want to, don't you care about people who are suffering? That's really cool to stand up for people who are suffering and to say, I don't really care what the other guy thinks. I, I care about what I see in front of me right now. And if you don't get it, that's on you. I, I have to care about people suffering in China. And as an American with tremendous power, buying power, what I do, who I vote for will affect those people. I'm not on a little island here. So, you know, we have responsibilities as, as Americans and as Christians, if you're a Christian. Wow, brother. No, I really appreciate you and you speaking up and standing the ground and, and um, uh, holding the flag for many of us who are not able to do it or still in the closet about it and not being able to, to speak up or willing to speak up. Uh, when, when Socrates was before Athens and he said, I would rather obey God rather than you, he was willing to take the hemlock and die. 
when Paul was before the Sanhedrin and his, his colleagues there, he said, I'd rather obey God than you. And he ended up losing it as well. When Luther, though, stood before the Senate there when they were about to convict him, said, I have to speak my conscience. And then he ended it with, and God help me. Uh, this principle of humility and standing your ground, it's a fine line. And some people just don't know how to walk it. I, I want to be able to do that. And I think your books and your resources, the things you've given us have been extremely helpful there. Uh, I, I do appreciate your time and uh, the resources you're doing. And the book that you just uh, published, uh, Fish Out of Water, is your testimony, is it not? Well, yes and no. It's really the story of my life until my 25th birthday. So the very end of the book is this outrageous miracle that I experienced, which there's no other way to put it. It was a miracle of God, not the kind of thing that I thought could ever happen to me. And it changed my life instantaneously. It was one of those things that, you know, I will never, ever, ever forget. Not a goldfish of some sort, What it was like. It was, it, it's, it was a dream. God revealed himself to me to dream. But the point is, up until that point, I didn't know what I was doing or thinking. I was just drifting around and trying to make sense of things and really, really lost. And God in his mercy reached me. So when I speak places, I kind of give this testimony. But the book, I wrote the book. It's, it's uh, right behind me. It's called Fish Out of Water. I okay. said, I want to write a book that you can give to anybody who is not on the same page politically, who is not on the same page theologically. It's just a fun read. A lot of it is just funny, crazy stories growing up in a Greek immigrant background, uh, home and working class and, and, and then going to Yale and the weird experience of trying to deal with that. And so a lot of it is funny and crazy, but at the end, of course, it gets, uh, it gets a little bit serious, but I said, I want to write a book that people can give to anyone that maybe wouldn't read a book that is on the nose about faith or God or something, just a, just a kind of a fun read, but that gets there eventually uh, at the end, by which time, hopefully the reader will have uh, invested enough that they're willing to, to, to follow it. Deal with it that way. All right. Uh, we're coming close to the end and I want to honor your time. Um, any final words or anything that you do when life really gets tough, Eric, and the, the, the people really start going after you? How do you find strength in God as David the king did? How do you come back up when you're really knocked down? I mean, people. I can- really have to say that by the grace of God, I don't get knocked down too much because my faith really is in, in God. In other words, I want to say that like you said before, we have to be humble. If I've done something wrong, I want to know and I want to repent. If I'm doing what I think is the right thing and people don't get it and they attack me, I can't be thin-skinned about it. I mean, they're attacking some public figure. Is it me? I don't know. They, they have some idea, some cartoon image in their mind. Uh, that kind of comes with the territory. But I just think to myself, the more real God becomes to you, the more you're worried about what he's thinking and not what somebody wrote about you or whatever. It, to me, it just comes with the territory. Some people will write good stuff. Some people write bad stuff, whatever. My job is to do the right thing, to look to God, to try to be pure and holy and, and do the, what's honestly the right thing. And when I get it wrong, to repent and, you know, just to live my life that way. And I think, to be perfectly honest, I think it comes with time for me that uh, I wasn't able to do this 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But uh, day by day, God is just sanctifying us and preparing us for whatever he has for us. So that's that's kind of been my path. And, you know, some days I'll get it wrong. Some days I'll get it right. Uh, coming in for one final question, and we'll wrap it up with this one. It just came in here. Actually, one of my, buddy, one of my friends at that college, um, uh, Professor Ted Williams, political science, he said the following. He said, I appreciate the contribution of both gentlemen, yet the Nazis dehumanized Jews. It seems to me that 
on the right side of history would be for Christians to align themselves with the support of marginalized ethnic groups. Bonhoeffer was fighting this fight. However, the battle against cancel culture doesn't seem to be what he or the G Jesus would be fighting today. I don't understand the connection between persecuted Christian groups today losing their social media accounts. There doesn't seem to be a parallel in my humble opinion. Well, I just want to say humbly right back. I think that's entirely mistaken. Um, I think that, first of all, it's an absurd thing to compare the Jews who are being gassed. We're, by the grace of God, we're not there. But if we continue down this path, we're moving in that direction. So does that make people feel any better that we will get there where Christians can be gassed or killed? I mean, the, the, it's about the principle. When you demonize another human being, when you have the power to murder them, you will murder them. Right now in America, we have enough freedom that people aren't doing that quite yet. But the issue is this principle of how do you treat your fellow human beings with whom you disagree? And when people talk about marginalized ethnic groups, I, I have to say, I find this a little ridiculous. I don't know anybody who doesn't care about marginalized people. I don't know anybody who doesn't care about them. The only question is, what do we do about it? Now, if you're saying, oh, let's just open the borders and let's destroy American jobs because we don't really care about American poor people. We just care about the poor people in Guatemala. I mean, let me say, it's not so simple. If we were able to take in innumerable refugees, believe me, I would say, come on in, because I want to bless those people as a Christian. But to be simplistic and to quote scripture and say, oh, we're supposed to honor the alien and the far <laughs> We know we're supposed to do that. that. What does that have to do with government policies. You still have to have borders. You still have to maintain sovereignty. And when we so sloppily were quoting scriptures and saying, well, I have to care for people. I mean, I have to love murderers. That doesn't mean that I say, let the murderers go free, or I don't believe murder is a crime. Or what? In other words, we're commanded to love everyone, but that doesn't mean that our policies and our laws go by the wayside. When the, when, when the Pope, when Pope John Paul II was almost killed, his murderer went to jail and John Paul II went there and prayed with him. Mm. So he forgave him and he prayed with him, but he didn't say, you got to let him out of jail. The man was a menace to society. So when we're talking about, and obviously, you know, some foolish person is going to think I'm comparing uh, marginalized ethnic groups to murderers. I'm not. I'm talking about the principle that on the one hand, you have people and human concerns and heart concerns and faith concerns. Then you have public policy and laws. You can't conflate the two. When you do that, what you're really doing is almost trying to create a utopia trying to get to heaven without the cross. Uh, life is, we're fallen and we have to figure these things out. So I think that our heart in America is always to help anyone we can. The question is how to do it. And I'll, I'll finish on this. It's the same thing with, if I care about the poor, I have an obligation as a Christian to speak against big government, against social policies, against open borders, because these are policies which will harm the American urban poor. Now, people say, well, that's that's not cool. All my friends think that's wrong. Well, your friends might think it's wrong. But the question is not what do they think? The question is, is it wrong? Mm. I would say that we've had 65 years to show that socialist big government policies crush poor people. And because of that, I have an obligation as a Christian to say we got it wrong. We now know we now have the statistics we didn't have in 1965, 1975. And we see that this keeps people in poverty. This harms people. So I have an obligation to speak out against big government, 
and and uh, high taxes. Why? Because I think it hurts the poor. Now, people are going to disagree with me, but that doesn't change the fact that I know I care about the poor. God commands me to care about the poor, to care about marginalized groups. The question is, what do I do in terms of laws? And that's where it gets more complicated. And when people say it's not complicated, it's simple. I say, you're mistaking. It is complicated. And we have to kind of argue it out and debate it out because we, we want to get the answer right. We don't just want to look cool to our friends and virtue signal. Meanwhile, the poor go to hell and suffer, but at least I look good. And that is terrible. Yeah, I think when we get social canceled, when we get canceled socially, we could technically get canceled permanently. And that's, there's a link there between the two. And what you said there is profound. Eric, uh, I do appreciate your time and uh, what you're doing. And may God continue to bless you and the work you're doing. And I'll do what I can to continue supporting you. And um, uh, I appreciate the work you're doing. Let me be honest. I really do. And uh, I want to say thank you for, for doing it. And um, listen, we give God what we have and he uses us. So he's using you. And by his grace, he's using me. And we'll just keep marching. God bless you, Khaldun. God bless you. You too. Take care.